you know, we, we so, we're so focused on myofibular protein and our protein needs meeting that needs, but everything else is adapting alongside it. So our tendons need to get stronger. Um, all the connected tissue in the belly of the muscle and the organ that is the muscle, our bones need to get stronger. Growth hormone helps with all those things. So it's going to help with stability um, with the entire musculoskeletal system. So that's beneficial. I, I think personally, my, my big theory with um, why people tend to grow better a lot of times with in terms of muscle mass with growth hormone is that it stays off the body fat gains that they would otherwise get that might s- slow them down just because I'm getting too fat or mm. psychologically they don't want to or simply that they can eat more and have more anabolic drive coming from the incoming food but at the same time have a better P ratio so more muscle mass relative to body fat. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Blood, Sweat, and Gear with coaches Skip Hill, Andrew Berry, myself, Scott McNally, and we are joined by Scott Stevenson. What's up, Scott? I'm here, baby. We're Hell ready yeah. to go. Hell yeah. Guys, all I have of no our programming. I'm talking about. I have no itinerary or anything for today, but that's good. It matters. Is that's there good. such a thing for the show? Really? <laughs> All of our programming, guys, is brought to you by truenutrition.com. Use our code THINK for additional savings. We have They have high-quality, third-party tested supplements. They're a company that you can trust. They're a company that all four of us have trusted for literally over decades now. Um, you can go to supplementsource.ca if you're in Canada, and you can get great deals on uh, various products over there as well. So definitely check them out for our Canadians. And, of course, we're brought to you by Patreon. Um, Skip, I'm letting you take the wheel here, man. It was your thought that we'd bring we'd bring Scott on, and that we'd basically just pick his brain, right? And I know you yeah, had some and, topic ideas, exactly. And and the topic was difficult, you know, to specifically come up with because there are just random things that have <laughs> I say popped into my head, you know, over the last six eight months. But it's primarily because of you know the questions that I'm asked by clients and stuff like that. And sometimes there are those questions, and and, and it's funny because you know trainers don't like to admit this. There might be something that I'm not sure of. Yeah. I don't know about this. So they just kind of positively and very arrogantly rattle off some that that may or may not be true, and they may believe or they don't believe. So Scott is kind of the go. The go-to guy on things like this. And I have brought For a couple of these things. Okay. I can well, do that better yeah. anybody. Is what you're saying? No, everybody else does. And then it, at least at the very least, if you don't know it, you may say you don't know. And you're like, well, oh, sure. almost like let's let's process this. That let's, you know, work through this. Let's hit it from from all these angles. And one of the things that has stood out to me was the um I Andrew and I got on a on a topic or not a topic, but a discussion about IGF levels. Uh, versus, well, here I have it written here now, so I don't want to mess it up. Um, it's IGF levels. The here's my question: IGF levels with with split doses versus bolus doses, the effect or impact it'll have on IGF levels. But here's mm-hmm. here's the hang up that I have. Wait, you talking about GH? In bolus dosing versus IGF one. Uh, yes, GH? yes, yes. Thank yes, you. Yes. I'm so okay, yeah, yeah. like right. I'm so excited and scattered and and have a million things on my brain. Thanks for <laughs> clarifying. Because you're right. It's GH dosing based on the IGF levels, and there there's just that bolus versus split dose. You know, it's kind of a what well, is it? 
is it an antiquated idea to think that the split dosing is so much better for lipolysis versus a bolus dose for, is it really going to matter? How much is it going to matter? And yeah, yeah, I could keep going and going. What are your thoughts on, on the split dose versus bolus dose of GH? So normal GH production is like maybe two IUs a day, something like that. Um, that's endogenous production for, you know, larger person. And let's say that you're going to do like 10 IUs on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You're doing kind of the bolus thing. The idea being that that would jack up your IGF-1 more so than smaller doses spread throughout. So taking that's 30 IUs over kind of six days, let's say, and instead you do five IUs a day. So you do like one and a half or a little more than one and a half IUs three times a day, spread it out. If you hit those 10 IUs, those are going that, that GH is going to be up and out in about eight hours. So if you do that in the morning, it's, you know, if you do it at eight o'clock, it's pretty much by dinner time. You've got no lipolysis being driven by the GH. Now, if you take a one and a half IUs or so, and then you get yourself up to about five IUs a day, you're, you know, two and a half times endogenous production. So you're driving GH lipo- based lipolysis all day long if you're spreading those out every eight hours roughly or or su- substantially. So <clears throat> that's kind of the, the pharmacokinetic idea of spreading the doses out for better lipolysis. And, I'm, dude, I remember back in the intense muscle days, we were talking about this like it was probably 15 yeah. years ago and trying yeah. to figure out, like, why it would work. And I just – I. Maybe I don't. I didn't come up with the idea, but it was an idea that I had that I probably took from someone else. But that's kind of what I was thinking: is that the the higher doses, because that's that's the thing. Unless you've got unless you've got acromegaly, you've got a pituitary tumor, an adenoma in your pituitary, you've got giant GH output. Ten IU's is way above what you're going to get, um, at least over that prolonged eight hour period. You can get pretty high spikes of GH, but they come, they, they, they rise and they fall pretty rapidly. So maybe you're hacking the system with the big dose. And that would be something that would produce the elevated levels of IGF one more so than the same equivalent dose spread out over the same period of time, but in the micro dosing, the smaller doses. So I don't know the, the thing that's interesting and I'll, I'll let you, let you interject, but um, Andrew and I were just, talking about um, a situation where someone was had just crazy IGF-1 response. These guys know about right. it because okay. – and let me backtrack just one sec because uh, when Skip started this segment, you know, talking about like coaches like to pretend like they know everything and, and appear all-knowing in front of their clients. And I just want to say like as, as a coach, been doing this for years, when I don't know something, I reach out to my friend groups – like Scott, yeah, I reached mm-hmm. out to you about this. I reached out to Scott and Skip about about the GH question. Just see, hey, have you guys seen this before? Maybe you guys don't know, but have you seen something like this before? And I have other groups that you know um, I'll rely on too. You know, like Chris Tuttle is a good friend of mine. We we share ideas back and forth, and that's what I kind of think of it as is sharing ideas. You know, because we all have general knowledge about what we're talking about. Maybe not as specific as the, a very particular case, but maybe one of our colleagues has seen something and has picked something up along the way that does you know. Fit that niche uh, answer that we're looking for, right. but um, mm-hmm. to go back to what uh, Scott Stevenson was just saying about because I, I know this person wouldn't mind me talking about it. I'm not going to name him, but um, I had a client who I used to work with, and he came back after a year and a half, and I don't recall 
um, his IGF ever being very high before because it wasn't because um, we did look back uh, subsequently. But um, his IGF came back at uh, 821, I believe it was, which for those who aren't very familiar, like that's off the charts, right? Like, <laughs> like you know, you're on really good the normal range. Yeah. Like, you know, you got some good growth if you're in the fours, you know, high threes, fours. If your IGF levels are sitting there, you're like, okay, I'm on some real good stuff. When you see 800, like my jaw dropped when I saw that and I was like, this can't be real. But anyway, my -hmm. plan for him after, you know, talking to Scott Stevenson about this extensively, and we had two hour conversation between two different calls, looking at research papers and, and, you know, going over acromegaly cases, et cetera. Um, we decided pull his GH out and let's see, you know, what, what, what his IGF levels are, you know, naturally, because we needed to find out, Hey, does he have a tumor? And is this something that he needs medical attention for, you know, or does he just have some really good stuff? And is he a really good responder? And we got the results back uh, yesterday or day before, and his natural results came back at like 273, 274. So the sigh of relief, I felt in range. Yeah. So the, the sigh of relief I had, of okay cool like i don't have a client that has a tumor that needs medical care but also dude you got some really good stuff give me that source like that kind of a double whammy there <laughs> but anyway i just wanted to interject the, the facts about it yeah so but yeah. he's he's someone who you know is i would say definitely is a responder in terms of igf production and i would imagine i mean i could totally imagine there are situations where some people are more so responders in terms of lipolysis um, it seems, and this is total anecdotal, um, that the people who, and you've probably seen this too, Ken, the people who, and you, all you guys probably have seen this, the people who respond really well to GH, they get all the good stuff and they also will tend to get the facial feature changes and the, um, the nose, you know, sort of the bulbous nose sometimes. I've seen some peaked ears. Sometimes yeah. it happens. People get the cartilage changes. So, that tells me, suggests to me at least that a lot of tissues, the adipose tissues, adipose is technically connected tissue, actually. So the connected tissues are responsible or are responsive to the GH sort of um, on all kinds, all sorts, not just the adipose. But anyway, back to that, because there's a good question. And then I'll, I'll throw this last thing out here. It was kind of it was kind of facetious question, but Chase Irons is like, what about 18 IUs every day? Yeah. Like, okay. Well, then, then you max. Then you're maxing out everything, right? But if you've got limited funds and limited GH, it does just from a pharmacokinetic perspective, it makes sense to spread it out because the levels will come back down in terms of GH and its effects on fat loss. But what I what I don't know is what a dose response would look like if, for instance, you took you know a host of subjects in and gave them two IU's, five IU's, ten IU's, fifteen IU's um, for uh, you know, you're not going to get much of an IGF response just from a single dose. But if you try those different kind of bolus-related protocols, the same dose over a period of time, um, less frequently higher amounts versus more frequently lower amounts, what would happen in terms of IGF-1? Um, that was that was the guess because a lot of people were finding that for whatever reason, they seemed to bulk better with the bolus doses. And maybe they just got more water retention. You know, and that helped to some degree or that or maybe it just shifted. There could be a bunch of psychological placebo based effects there. But that's the part that I don't know, because you're not going to see researchers getting money to test those sorts exactly. of things <laughs> with those super high doses of GH. So anyway, you had a couple of things, at least a few thoughts on your 
on your head, Skip. Yeah, I always do. In fact, too many. So when you guys are able to speak longer, it allows my brain to filter through what's important and what isn't. (laughs) (laughs) So I I appreciate that. What what I'm wondering is this, and and it's something that, again, this is one of those things that we can't really, there is no science yet, or we're not to the point yet where we can say matter of factly and, and that a lot of these answers are black and white. I completely understand it. But for the sake of conversation, I, <clears throat> if the lipolysis, well, first, we can't really separate, and correct me if I'm wrong. If you guys feel differently, correct me if I'm wrong. Because, I, again, I'm thinking out loud here, and this is why I wanted to do this segment, to just be able to kind of bounce things off each other. I, How do we separate, or or can we? Because I don't, I don't think we can. The impact of lipolysis from GH use with the impact of gaining muscle or getting bigger there. If we're responsive to GH and we have higher IGF levels that are uh, super physiological, they're higher than, than we need. And we're a good responder for that reason, from a hormone standpoint, from an IGF standpoint, then, then I don't see the dosing. It's either effective with your dosing or it's not effective with your dosing versus, and, and I think you gave a great answer for, for bolus versus, versus, um, you know, more split dosing. Logically, mm-hmm. that makes sense. I like things that are logical and sensible and it, and it makes sense, but yet I could mm-hmm. still see on the other side, the bolus, what I couldn't latch onto was this. I, and I'll admit it. I'm just going to be completely transparent and this always feeds the the trolls so they love me when I do this but I didn't know that IGF levels don't fluctuate very much. I didn't think that they radically fluctuated but that they didn't really fluctuate and the reason is is I'm trying to attach that bolus versus the split dose with the fact that the IGF levels don't, it's something that we talked about Scott um, a while back, like years ago, intense muscle days where mm. changing the dose of GH to intramuscular versus sub Q would spike IGF levels higher, but shorter. So my brain latched onto that. And I'm like, well, there is that difference, that difference. There can be those differences, but I think what my brain latched onto was they aren't as dramatic they're subtle change. Take the wheel. I mean, does that is any of what I'm saying yeah. make any sense? Okay. Um, well, one thing I don't I don't know it, 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 the pharmacokinetics or the half life and the profile you get for growth hormone it doesn't vary. It varies a little bit depending on the formulation, but it doesn't vary much whether it's IM or sub Q. Um, as far as I know, that's different for insulin. Insulin's a different story, but right. I haven't also seen what happens if you inject into an active muscle. Right, and then go train. So that probably that would change it. I'm guessing, but I haven't seen that studied. Okay, you're so talking the, about insulin, the, right? When you when you're asking uh, about- insulin, that's the case. But with growth hormone, you I think you mentioned comparing sub Q versus IM on growth hormone, right. and how and yeah. I don't think the the profile changes the pharmacokinetic profile that how fast it comes up and how fast it comes down okay. with regards to GH. Well, I don't want you to move away yet. I have one more thing on this topic. Is that yeah, okay, yeah, Scott? no, no, no. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, let, right. let me finish my thought. I've got, I've sure. got some more on, on this. So the, the interesting thing is, is that we have to remember. Sorry, I was looking something up here. Let me get back to you guys. Um, that so growth hormone has has roles during growth and development, um, where it's it's stimulating 
people talk about growth more in hyperplasia and all this kind of stuff. It's doing those sorts of things in developing muscle. Whether it has a role in hyperplasia in the context of someone producing more muscle cells who is an adult human, that sort of thing can happen. It's been demonstrated in animal models. Whether someone's on super physiological growth hormone, if that would if that would tend to cause that to happen, I don't know. But but growth hormone for a, a growing individual, this is why this gives them to dwarfs who don't have enough growth hormone. It has growth effects, and some of those are mediated by IGF-1, and that's why that's been studied in that context. Um, but growth hormone for adult, I mean, you don't see bodybuilders say, oh, my God, that guy's obviously abusing growth hormone. He's nine feet tall, right? You don't, you, people aren't get, getting any, any, any uh, taller or their bones aren't growing. They're getting the cartilage effects. Um, so we've got different roles of those hormones as adults, so to speak. So growth hormone then like produced during exercise. I remember there was once, um, I won't say who it is, but someone was claiming like, don't eat any food after your exercise. So you don't miss out on that growth hormone spike that you get. Right. Cause you can go hypoglycemia, semic, that'll cause a growth hormone spike. You go to sleep, that'll cause a growth hormone spike, blah, blah, blah. Um, so the IGF one, what we're kind of doing with this when you're taking someone, this is why I, this is why I had that suspicion that the bolus doses might be better for producing IGF one is because growth hormone usually doesn't get very high, but if, if we, if there's some threshold for growth hormone and you're going to more likely get that with prolonged elevation that comes from an injection, that might be more, more something that's, that's, that's beyond that threshold for triggering more IGF-1 production in the liver. And actually there's IGF-1 productions being produced locally in, in, for instance, muscle cells and bone cells too. So that's, it's a whole other story. I've got like an hour and a half. Hey, good, because uh, that's where I was going to go this. next. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we can talk about all that. So, but we're, we're using growth hormone as, as bodybuilders and we're going above just a couple I use a day um, in a super physiological context. And I think the further we go super physiological, the more likely we're going to be able to then exploit that. It's called the somatomedin hypothesis. I, growth hormone stimulates IGF-1, and IGF-1 would do most of the work of growth hormone. We know that's not really true, and it's not that direct hormonal axis. There's, there's growth hormone acting directly, and growth hormone triggering IGF-1 production locally, and then the IGF-1 delivered doing its deal. So it's much more complicated. But... We're kind of going outside of the normal physiology of an adult human when you're putting in 10 IUs of growth hormone a day, for instance. Um, and we have that mechanism to produce IGF-1 um, that we that was important, is definitely important during growth and development when we're in infant, when we're infanthood and youth, et cetera, et cetera, before we become fully, fully formed, so to speak, as adults. And we growth place of fuse and all that kind of jazz. So the other thing with growth hormone too, or IGF one, it's kind of interesting. Like in in the, just the normal state, you can bring that down. You can. I thought you were going to ask, can we uncouple IGF one from growth hormone? And yeah, you can. You can have a situation where someone's dieted down. And this is what you probably remember. This Ken, maybe you guys do, Scott and Andrew. Um, if you wanted to like get a growth hormone prescription, you diet yourself down into oblivion, and your and your IGF one will drop. And that is the surrogate for low GH, and then you could get a GH prescription because obviously if your IGF-1 is low, then you don't have the growth hormone. But your IGF-1 will go low if you're hypogonadal or if you're hypocaloric, so to speak, if you're not eating enough food, if you're starving yourself. So you could have someone who's um, – and this is a potential possibility when people do the 10 IU um, you know, standardized, see if my growth hormone is 
or just sorry, not that, not that test when they take their IGF one levels before a diet and then eight weeks into a dastardly diet and they take their, start taking their GH at the same time. It's like, well, the GH raises your IGF one. It would, but you're dieting so hard that your IGF one will go down. And if those depends on how much gear that person's on, um, but there's so much variability there that the, the elevation of IGF-1 from the growth hormone could be offset by the diet, depending on their responsiveness to the androgens in terms of IGF-1. And that's kind of a black box, too. Yeah, and so, that would have to be pretty dr- dramatic, though, right? I mean, it, it, from, a, from a caloric standpoint, to really offer – I don't think – I don't – and correct me if, if you disagree or if I'm wrong, but if someone is – really calorically restricted for a while, then, then that would probably impact uh, or, or might offset someone taking, let's say this as an, as an example. And I understand that this, there's a ton of variables here, but just to kind of put a situation with, with my question here, let's say we have someone who's at four IU of Mm -hmm. GH and they're coming back with pretty normal IGF levels, like to the point where, and Andrew knows where I'm going with this, uh, to the point where we're going, hmm, I wonder if this is real. <laughs> this is probably not good GH. And, and you know, I would think the same thing. Yet the GH serum gets tested after, say, 10 IUs or a bottle, and it comes out that it's good. So mm-hmm. I the diet, though, that, would, that it would take or the caloric intake caloric intake versus, you know, output obviously would, would matter too, but it can't really, it would take a lot for the diet to offset that. So then you get into the people who are essentially. I know personally, I'll just, I'll just say this. I know personally that um, with, with no exogenous androgens and no exogenous GH, I can come, I've come below normal IGF-1 range. On a blood work. But how radical is that diet? Like, are you lean? I was, as- I was at like, I was like 7%, probably 7 or 8%. Okay. All for right. For a period of time. I was just, I was just holding that for a while. Um, I wasn't, I was, I took a, about a couple year break when I was in, in uh, acupuncture school. Okay. Now that was without like GH weight. though, right? No G. Yeah. That was like no GH. So I just, okay. just the being dieted down and being in a dieted, I felt okay. It wasn't like, oh my God, all I'm thinking about is eating, you know, and. Um, I was okay holding that, but I, I was below. You can diet yourself below normal range. Um, yeah. getting and, and that, that, I can, that I can get. But then if yeah. you put growth hormone in, or even if you're it's, on TRT and not a big cycle, to end up with those average, uh, very middle-of-the-road IGF levels, then it becomes a question of the GH, but then the GH comes back that it tests well from a serum standpoint. So then we have what is essentially what we want to call someone who doesn't respond very well. But here, which leads me into my next question. Okay. Is it possible that, well, or maybe it is possible and I'm sitting over here asking it the wrong way, but is it possible that the, that the, the benefits that we get from growth hormone, the, the myriad of benefits is not, only related to IGF levels or IGF production itself. Is there anything outside of the IGF level that is beneficial from the growth hor- from the use of growth hormone? Like the direct direct actions of, of growth hormone? Sure. Let's oh yeah. Say, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah. And, and that's oh, what I'm thinking. Yeah. So what are what are those? I mean, clearly this is probably a giant arena for you. But if you just had to throw a few things out, like 
what are those benefits and kind of encapsulate that or, or, or tie it up in a, in a smaller, yeah, the the arena instead of the arena. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's interesting there, like the growth hormone studies with humans don't show an effect on muscle growth. Um, there's a rat study that I pulled up where they had, um, well, that case they were they're deficient in IGF one. I take that back. That was a different study. But um, if you're deficient in growth hormone, um, or you're just, or you're doing high growth hormone levels, it doesn't seem to help with muscle growth per se. But it's it's gonna it increases uh, um, connective tissue, collagen protein production more so than what you see in myofibular protein. So it's gonna help. That's the thing. You know, we, we so, we're so focused on myofibular protein and our protein needs meeting that needs, but everything else is adapting alongside it. So our tendons need to get stronger. Um, all the connected tissue in the belly of the muscle and the organ that is the muscle, our bones need to get stronger. Growth hormone helps with all those things. So it's going to help with stability um, with the entire musculoskeletal system. So that's beneficial. I, I think personally, my, my big theory with um, – why people tend to grow better a lot of times with in terms of muscle mass with growth hormone is that it stays off the body fat gains that they would otherwise get that might s- slow them down just because I'm getting too fat or mm. psychologically they don't want to or simply that they can eat more and have more anabolic drive coming from the incoming food but at the same time have a better P ratio so more muscle mass relative to body fat um, and they can keep pushing that up. So let's say they're okay and adding um, their P ratio is like um, like one-third fat and two-thirds muscle. Let's say it's half and half. That's not bad really. pound of muscle for every pound of fat. And you can change it to two pounds of muscle and one, one pound of fat, which is dramatically different, right? Uh, they're still gaining some body fat. But what's happening when you grow, when you, when you put on 30 pounds and 20 of it's muscle versus 30 pounds and – 15 of it is muscle, but 15 of it is fat. So 20 versus 10, 15 versus 15, that's a, that's a big difference in how you look. And you're willing to keep going. And, and it, it, all in all, that makes a huge difference. So if you, can, if you could I – mean, imagine, imagine you had a supplement. Let's just take this sort of hypothetically for growth hormone that's, that doesn't do jack diddly for muscle mass per se. It's not anabolic in terms of muscle mass what, whatsoever. But it prevented all fat gain. And it wasn't catabolic in some way. And growth hormones catabolic to fat, but it's not. I don't think it's catabolic to muscle tissue. Right. And you could just eat and eat and eat, and you just couldn't get fat, which is what kind of happens to some people when they when they are responders and they go on fifteen IU's of farm grade GH. That just lets the, the sky's the limit, man, because you mm-hmm. got nothing holding you back. And, and I think sometimes like, you get bigger and when guys put on more body fat, they put on more water, they can't train as hard, you reach that sort of limitation. When you get too big, it's like, okay, now I've just gotten too sloppy. I can't train the way I need to to try to push things so I have to come back down. Yeah. Um, assuming the growth hormone isn't causing water retention, contributing to that kind of an issue. Yeah, if you've got something that prevents the fat gain and, and, and then gives you that fullness and roundness that comes with the water retention of growth hormone, that's that's gold, man. That's a placebo. Like not, it's like, look at me. I I put this in, and two weeks later, like I've metamorphosized, which is the story that you know I've heard a thousand times. Oh shit! Then you're ready to go. Like like you want to go, and and then you line everything up. A lot of us are like, yeah, I, I do everything perfect all the time, but it makes it a hell of a lot more fun 
when you're seeing it, you know, when you're seeing this magical transformation. So that's what I've sort of thought that growth hormone is helpful to, it's not hurting. It's helping with the connective tissue, the supportive structures, the musculoskeletal system. It's not hurting in muscle cell growth. It may be having some impact on satellite cells as well, because it does, like I mentioned before, it does induce local IGF-1 production, which is one of the things that triggers the satellite cells into movement and those are necessary just for getting bigger muscle cells so um i haven't seen i think the highest was i was like seven or eight i i used and that may have been an older men um but there's so much variation too there's going to be there's responders and non-responders in pretty much every study so so it's helping everything else and it's preventing the fat and that's a that's a golden combination even if it's not tremendously anabolic like testosterone would be or, or steroids would be let me ask you this let me ask, can you define go ahead andrew because i've been asking a lot of questions go well, ahead well because i think this one might be interesting in terms of growth factors because um i remember reading studies about growth hormone um exerting effects on mgf um and other growth mm-hmm. factors and, yeah. and having which which have a positive effect on you know uh myofibular uh, protein accumulation do you mm-hmm. I, I think there's like a study in 2003 that I read that was like kind of like the the big one, and I was just trying to like scan through. I, you, you're probably like me. I have bookmarks of like thousands of studies, and I, being an idiot, mm-hmm. I don't organize them very well. One of them, one of the you know labels, just like GH, right? Well, that's not yeah. very specific because I got about 200 GH studies in there, right? But um, right. but yeah, can you speak on that? And because I remember walking away being like, okay, so this is de- actually one of the direct ways that it does stimulate growth inadvertently, I guess, direct directly but inadvertently through MGF. So when you're looking at those studies and, and for people who are listening, I use EndNote to organize all my references. I have like 12,000 or some, something like that in there. Helps, <laughs> it helps it really, really nicely. I've got folders and folders and folders, and you can mm-hmm. move them from folders and reorganize really easily. Um, but here's, the, here's, I think, sort of the, um, the issue that a lot of people have had when they're looking at the studies if, is if you're looking at growth hormone, during development, it's going to, it's helpful with the development of muscles and muscle mass, right? So it's going to have factors on those effects on those growth factors. The question that is a little bit different is what impact is going to have on those growth factors in the context of resistance training as stip turning on muscle growth, hyperplasia, hypertrophy. So the animal, the animal research is really kind of bizarre. Like I just mentioned, there's a, a study where they did ladder climbing with rodents, so they have them climb up the ladder, kind of like doing, you know, sort of lunges. What they put a backpack on them, and they get pretty good muscle growth in the calf. And these animals were like they had only like twenty percent of normal IGF one. It didn't make a difference; it had no effect. The most extreme animal model, um, aside from the hanging the quail studies where they hang the weight, is the compensatory hypertrophy model, which I talk about ad nauseum all the time on my podcast with Scott. And that's where they study the calf and they'll take out like the soleus or they'll take out the plantaris or the gastrocnemius and they'll leave the rest of the muscles in, one or two of the three um, triceps. We, some humans have a plantaris. That's the that's the hidden calf muscle that people don't talk about. It's between the soleus and the gastroc. Some people have one. Some people have two. It's either bigger or smaller. Anyway, it's bigger in rats. So they can do studies. They'll take, like, let's say they take the soleus and plantaris out, and all you have is the gastroc. And the animal will limp around for a while, and then it walks normally, and that thing will grow like crazy. It'll grow to be 50, 100% bigger than it was previously. 
it compensates, it's compensatory hypertrophy. And you're like, okay, shit, that's pretty cool. So then they've done studies. Like, so what's contributing that? What's, you know, what is necessary? What's driving that? And they've done studies where they, um, where they castrate the animals. So there's no testosterone. It doesn't make a difference. It grows just the same. And then they do studies where they, they give the rodents streptozotocin and it poisons the pancreas and they have no insulin, right? doesn't make a difference. They grow the same. And then they take out the thyroid hormone um, and doesn't make a difference. They grow the same. And let's just take out the entire pituitary. So they got, they got no, no, um, no testosterone. They got no thyroid. They got no growth hormone. They got zilch and it grows the same. So that points to the idea that tension is the most important thing. So it's hard to look at the animal studies and say, ah, yeah, like, you know, we see that growth hormone does this in terms of these growth factors in terms of growing muscle. Um, and you've got these, these studies like where they remove IGF-1 or they have a model where there's where factors are missing and you still get growth. So there's so many redundancies. It's hard to say what's absolutely necessary. What I think right. kind of what we're doing with body, with human bodybuilders is you've got all these switches, all these levers you can press to turn on muscle growth, right? And they, and they do help. And then animal model, when you move those things, that's just a tremendous model of muscle growth. That's the type of tension, you know, you can't get people to do. No one's going to volunteer to, you know, hey, take my gas drop and see how big my soleus grows. Yeah, um, yeah and I can do that shit. But if you just have all these switches and you turn, if you turn them all on, you turn on growth hormone, you turn off, I, turn on IGF-1. Vigor Steve was on. You guys talked about his IGF-1 experiment. It was, worked like crazy, right? Um, so those things can be additive depending on the person. And the thing is, is that those are all pretty much like, this is the crazy thing about androgens really is that average males producing like 10 milligrams of testosterone a day, right? Like true TRT would be like 100 milligrams a week. So 70 milligrams of testosterone in your 100 milligram of testosterone sip. And then maybe 200 gets you like roughly in range. So you think if we think about the body working around these hormones, if they're that vital, right, um, in some homeostatic fashion, you go way above that, ooh, you've got, you know, a little bit above that and the body's going to try to re-regulate things. And it, it does do that, of course. And if you go below that, you try to re-regulate things. But, but the system for whatever reason, can be hacked. Thank God, because this is what we want to do as bodybuilders. <laughs> and you get more when you go to 500 milligrams, which is five times production. The system isn't meant to regulate around that. It's like a loophole in the system that we're hacking. And then when you go to from 500 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams, you get even more. And that's 10 times what the system would normally be used to working with. It's way outside physiological range. So, and then when you take growth hormone and you put it in at 10 IUs, five times, it's, it's, you're not, what you're doing is we're hacking those systems. So that's importance in the normal physiological scenario of a natural person trying to make muscle gains isn't, isn't really so relevant because we're, we're, we're pushing the system so far outside of the normal physiological range. Um, and just making use of the fact that those, it doesn't have like, you know, some sort of way to, to block that excess stimulation because in most cases in, in animals that had like a tumor like that, they would never reproduce, you know, evolution would have weeded them out. So you wouldn't have, you know, there wasn't like a tribe of, of giants with acromegaly who had diabetes and, and all their issues. Cause you know, I don't know how, if they have fertility problems, but they don't live very long at all. So 
super elevations of growth hormone, super elevations of IGF-1. You're looking at probably cancer issues. Like all these, all these things we're hacking as bodybuilders are things that, that would never have evolved and they haven't because we regulate around much lower levels of all those hormones that we're exploiting now. So anyway, to answer your question, it's kind of hard to know. Yeah, definitely growth hormone turns on growth factor production, IGF-1, MGF, those sorts of things. I have a figure in that, um, uh, that talk that I did for John's site a few months back now. And you would think, yeah, it does this, that, and the other. But then when you test it, you know, at the smaller amounts, you don't see this magnificent effect. And some people use growth hormone, at least on muscle growth. So that's why I think growth hormone is helping more with fat, keeping the staving the fat off and allowing people to push the other levers, push the food, push the training and not get fat. And that's a, that's definitely a win. So that was a long diet. Did I answer your question? Kind of Andrew was getting at. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Skip, did you have a, did you have another topic? I know you had kind of a few of them lined up. Yeah, I had a, well, like I said, the, the questions turn into topics. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, what's up, guys? I have a lot of people who reach out to me on a regular basis who are trying to more effectively reach their goals. One of the biggest mistakes I see people make is that they're not getting enough protein. And there's only so much chicken breast we can eat through the day, but we can easily add a high-quality protein supplement to boost those numbers up. True Nutrition has just about every protein powder you can think of from high-quality weight isolate. If you don't tolerate lactose, then you could use their beef isolate, or you could use their pea protein isolate if you don't eat animal products. They literally have everything you'd think of. I've believed in them for like a decade before they advertised with us. And they they never went out of their way to say like, hey, we want to promote our stuff through you. I literally asked them because it's a company that I believe in. And at the end of the day, I want to see you guys reach your goals as effectively as possible. So if you use our code, think at True Nutrition, you'll get some savings, you'll help to support our programming, and you'll get some high quality products to more effectively reach your goals faster. Uh, you know, I had a, I had one that and, and this wasn't even specifically for Scott, but I like the concept of this because it's something that I do my best thinking when I'm driving or taking a shit. I don't know how you guys work, but that's when my brain processes things the best. It's something that came up to me. It's funny because the question, it's typically triggered by uh, something that a client will ask me, right? So we were had just been talking about... Um, or arguing, if you will, <laughs> about fast. The topic was like fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fiber. So I'm kind of switching, you know, gears a little bit and going from, uh, you know, gear, GH and everything to the training component. But it was something that I just just occurred to me and I thought, oh, oh. So you have fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers. I think we can all agree on that. Um not really, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and this may give you, this may be a segue for you where you go, oh, that's what, okay, so fast yeah. twitch, slow twitch muscle fibers, it's kind of an accepted, arguably antiquated uh, way to yeah. look at it. But then I started thinking, you know, the different ways to train different, you know, the more explosive or fast twitch and, you know, the longer duration, we've made the analogy of, you know, the marathon runner versus the sprinter. But how do you explain and how does that hold up when the vast majority of growth is from the negative portion of a rep? So the fast twitch in my brain, the fast twitch, slow twitch argument is essentially concentric or essentially concentric, the positive portion. So if all that growth is in the negative, 
I say all of it, but the vast majority of it, then how does that even meld or how does that how does that relate to fast and slow twitch muscle fibers? It's just a while I'm driving or a thought that <laughs> yeah. I had that I kind of came together and really couldn't. I'm like, I don't know if I can like how do I answer this? How does this come together? Um so the the fast twitch, slow, slow twitch, that's that's the people still use that term. It's it's really fine. Um, no one, well, you can do this in humans, but people aren't really measuring twitch velocity, that sort of thing, in, in people so much. Um, do you guys still hear me? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, good. My computer's kind of free, freezing a little bit over here. Um, so you've got you different ways you can type the fibers. People use type one, type twos, and then the two A, the twos are broken on the two A's and two X's, um, and that's based on Myas, and you can you can type them in various other ways too. Um, so what basically rules the roost there in terms of when those get used is this Henneman size principle. Um, so for lighter loads, easier things, you use the type ones first. Um, and fibers are located in motor units. So in like your eyeball, you might have like eight fibers per neuron. So a neuron in the fibers innervates as a motor unit. So because you got to be able to move your eyes little itty bitty bits, you don't need a whole bunch of fibers. And like in your quad, it might be hundreds and hundreds of fibers connected to a particular neuron. Um, so when you start off a set, let's say it's a relatively light load, you're going to probably use a lot of type one motor units. So all the fibers of motor unit are the same fiber type. Um, there's a neurotrophic effect, so the nerve really kind of dictates what fiber the fiber type is. And those guys are all always they all they have the same work history. They all do the same thing. When the nerve sends a signal, they all go at once. It's all one principle. So you start off your set, and and we'll just talk about throughout the set. And we'll break up in the concentric and eccentric. Um, and you're going to use type ones and some type two A's. Some, some lower threshold. This is the other way to to categorize the lower threshold motor units and higher threshold motor units. So as things get more difficult, um, as um, as the set ensues and the fatigue increases, your your nervous system will do a few things. It'll start turning off some of those motor units and turning on other ones. And it'll go to the higher thresholds, which will tend to be more so type twos and eventually the type two X's, which are the highest threshold or associated with the highest threshold motor units. But it's going to rotate through all those. So I like to explain this. It's like imagine like this side of the room, we got four clusters of people. You're the type ones, and this side's the type twos. And we start off, and we're using you know a lot of the type ones. You guys are all going, and then things get harder. I got to call, call some type twos in. But then the type one, some type ones will turn off and rest for a second. And the type twos will take up the load. So there's this magical rotation amongst them all, and the nervous system is also changing the um, the firing rate as the, the muscle fatigues that's called this muscle wisdom thing so it's not overly stimulating at a higher frequency than necessary so you don't get the nerve to fatigue unnecessarily and then you've got concentric eccentric and this is this is the interesting thing so when you do your concentric you need to use more fibers more motor units because you can only you produce less force on a concentric than an eccentric so you lift up, it's harder. You use more motor units, and then when you come back down, it's easier. You have to if you have to use less motor units because the force that you get per motor unit is higher. So if you left the same motor units on, you lift up, it would just stay there. You have to yeah. turn some of them off in order to lower the weight. 
but the force that's inherently produced in those motor units per se is higher. So this is why, and you said most of the, I kind of liked it, to be honest. I, I'm big on the idea of eccentrics being important. Um, when you compare, there's a meta-analysis comparing various studies where you can do concentric-only training versus eccentric-only training. You see that eccentrics tend to be a, be a little bit better in terms of producing muscle growth. Um, and the idea behind that would be is they produce more force. So the question that the is kind of equivocal. Some studies say this, some studies say that in the research is we've got pretty clear this Henneman size principle on concentrics or isometric contractions. If you just hold, you get the rotation, it'll get harder. The higher threshold motor units come in, you start calling in more and more. And then finally, if you're able to go pretty hard, you're a trained person, you might be able to activate all the motor units that are there, you know, at the very end of a maximal effort, isometric contraction. But on the eccentrics, that same orderly process, that same orderly progression from low threshold to high threshold may not quite be exactly the same. So when you lower, you're going to act, you're going to have to turn off some of the type ones and some of the type twos. And it's hard to know which ones I have. The studies are mostly like with hand muscles in this short of shit, right? Thumb muscles, they can isolate a single motor neuron and see. I haven't seen any studies that, that that occur to me, at least right now, to know whether there's because well, actually because they're kind of mixed, whether there's preferential type twos used on the eccentrics. Some suggest that, and then some suggest that there isn't preferential type twos or type ones. So the eccentrics are going to be when you do, like, say it's a max. So you can do a max effort concentric. You like just barely get it up, and then you can do a negative with that thing. You know, and if someone lifted it all the way up for you, you could probably do four or five negatives on most exercises if you were willing and able. They can take individuals and just do eccentrics, like on a knee extension with machine that will do that, and do 20 max effort eccentrics, all that you can possibly give and show like 10% fatigue. You would never see that in the gym. You'd have to have someone willing to lift the weight for you every time. Yeah. When right. we would do muscle soreness studies, we take like a one rep max and do eight sets of 10 eccentrics only with the max load they can lift, but you can lower the hell out of that thing. Yeah. So, cause the energetic cost is so little for those eccentrics. So, um, the thing that kind of, and this is my idea that has been kind of mentioned in the, but I think this totally fucks up our interpretation of research in a very generalized way. Is that let's say, like you kind of suggested, Ken, that eccentrics are better. There are better stimulus for muscle growth, right? Which would make sense if you just did eccentrics. You compare eccentrics to concentrics in many studies. They'll put you on a machine where you just do the eccentrics um, or you just do concentrics. And they, they try to equate these in certain ways. It's hard to do it, right? Because it's so easy. To, if you did the same load on the eccentrics, it's a breeze. If you do three sets of 10 with 70% of your one rep max, like you're going to get pretty fatigued after a few sets of that. You do that. You could do that all fucking day on the eccentrics. Yeah. So it's hard to say, but um, like there's a study, a good study that my advisor did is they compared, if you remember this, they compared five sets of 10 leg, leg press twice a week versus concentric only versus five sets of 10 concentric eccentric. So regular reps twice a week 
versus 10 sets of 10 concentric only. And what they found was they got the best muscle growth in the type 1 and type 2 fibers when they did the normal reps, when they included the eccentrics. And even when they doubled the concentric, they weren't able to um, make up for the growth that didn't occur when they left the eccentrics out. So, but here's the thing, the devil's in the dose, right? So eccentrics are more potent and you might have some situations where someone does, let's say you do a shitload of, hey, more is better, right? So (laughs) if you do too much of that shit, you get really, really sore and you may not, you may exceed your recovery abilities. So in some of those studies, and and Scott and I have talked this on my podcast, um, you see, you see stuff like people doing, some people doing better from 15 sets a week versus nine sets a week or six sets a week. And then some people doing better with nine sets a week versus 15 sets a week. So for some of those people, nine sets a week wasn't enough. 15 sets was better for other people. It's the other way around. The same thing could be with eccentrics. Let's just do a bunch of eccentrics. Well, if you do nine sets of eccentrics, that might be too much, but for other people, because they can recover from it, that might be better. It's a stronger stimulus, but that doesn't mean it's a, it's only a better stimulus. If you do the right amount of it, Mm -hmm. do too many sets, and then you just overdid it, and then you're just and it's just being stupid, right? Um, so, so yeah, that's the the type one and type twos. There are some studies suggesting that higher reps will kind of preferentially develop the type ones. Um, you do see there's some studies suggesting the type twos do get hit more so on the eccentrics, but we're doing concentric and eccentrics for normal reps in the gym, so you're kind of getting both. And you're not probably, especially if you're training hard, you're not probably preferentially just, you're not just hitting the type twos, for instance, on the eccentrics. It's both fiber types more than likely. Hmm. But that might vary by muscle group and, and also the how fast you bring things down, how well you control the eccentrics. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like there's a meta-analysis too with like rep tempo. And um, when you do these studies, there's so much variability. It's like there might be an effect for a given individual, but you can't make it out because everyone varies so much. Um, so, but I think, you know, we can talk about rep tempo and controlling the, the eccentric. I think it makes sense because you get, you get so much, I'll leave it at this. You get so much bang for your buck. You can do eccentrics when you don't increase fatigue during a set very much at all. Like I said, you can do 20 of those and hardly incur any fatigue to eccentrics only, but you get in the fibers that are active, the tension is much higher. And if you ten, if you believe that tension is important for muscle growth, I think so. Yep. then the eccentrics are definitely a winner. So don't neglect them. You know, you, in fact, you know, sometimes I feel what that, like when I get to the end of a set and then I'll leave it at this, sometimes I will go a little bit even slower on the eccentric just to make sure I don't injure myself. But I feel like if I try to get reps too fast because the concentrics are more energetically expensive, I'll get fewer reps. I almost yeah. rest on the eccentric to some degree. Hmm. So anyway, those are some, that's a ramble. Andrew Nolan, they said, uh, "What uh, were these participants average gym goers or advanced bodybuilders who had greater potential for mind-muscle connection and keeping tension in the muscle, etc.?" I feel that there would be uh, that would be a variable in bodybuilding versus an average person, which makes sense. You know, I know that my ability to control a negative is completely different now than it was even ten years ago. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. In- in the studies, like the isokinetic studies, they set they set the machine up to only go at a certain speed. So oh, okay. you, you push, you know, and then like with the leg press, I I know Dudley, he was you know he's my my mentor. It's all on a tempo too. They'll use like a metronome, 
So okay. like you just can't drop it down. Like you have to, you have to bring it down on tempo. Yeah. Um, so they control the, re- yeah, it's super important, right? It's a, it's a totally different animal. If you, push up real sure. fast and then just let it drop down and rest for two seconds at the bottom versus the guy that does a three set and section. Yeah. Yeah. Totally different rep. Yeah. Nice. So that's where I think it matters. You know, you can do a free fall and have very little activation yeah. until you get to the bottom. Then you have a stretch shortening cycle. And there's, there's some thoughts there. I mean, if people talk about stretch media and hypertrophy, there's also the possibility. It's like, Hey, you know, if you have good range of motion, and you're someone, if you do have some control and maybe you do a little bit of bouncy bounce at the bottom. And so you have a high, you'll get a stretch reflex there. You'll have high tensions during partial eccentric that in the lengthened position. If that's more potent, which it probably is, you can get more damage, muscle damage doing exercises or eccentric, especially in a lengthened position. That little bit of a stretchy stretch, which some people try to avoid, that could be more potent. But the mind muscle connection does matter. If you're just like just like doing a soup, like the guys, you know, who you guys would bounce the. I used to see guys in the. I haven't seen this in a while. They bounce. They're literally the rib cages are used, yeah. using it as a trampoline. Yeah, it's like yeah. what the fuck, man! You're just trying to break your sternum. Yeah. Um, if you're doing that sort of thing, no. But I always, you know, I think that there are people like Ronnie Coleman was the one. When I watch him train, like, oh, he's so sloppy. It's like, yeah, but he's connecting of the muscle. He was just. He, he was leveraging the elasticity of the muscle in the stretch shortening cycle, but in a somewhat controlled fashion. And despite how he kind of ended up, like people talk about how crappy his, his T-bar rowing was in the corner, but he was doing something right. Maybe not that exercise, but he had some sort of a mind-muscle connection because his back yeah. certainly certainly seemed to grow. Yeah. And the genetics are there too. So that's the other other confounding factor. But yeah. we saw that picture, that video of Hani. Or, uh, yeah. Was it, was it, who was it? Hadi. Remember that, Scott? Yes, I remember that. Doing those T-bar rows, and it's like, holy crap, man! I feel like I might, (laughs) I might hit my traps with that at best, you know? Yeah. And he has no reason to change it because clearly it's working. I mean, (laughs) that's the thing. If I were him, I would continue to do what I'm doing too. It's just that it's not applicable for the vast majority of the rest of us because it just, it's. You just look at look at that, and you're like, "That's egregious. That just does not. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. should not. He should not even video that and put that out." <laughs> but then you see his back, and it's like, "Yeah, yeah. I can't say anything." It, it, you know, exactly. You know, and Jay Cutler. I mean, I'm not. You know, I don't want to start picking people apart. I'm, we're talking about top bodybuilders. You know, the best bodybuilders on the planet. But there is an argument there, really. And this is another rabbit hole. You know, that we don't have time for, but. You have to, we, sometimes we really do have to step back and there's efficient training and there's good mechanics and everything else. And based on injury prevention and safety. And, and I just really do think that there is a genetically gifted part of this, this sport uh, or our society that I don't want to say can do whatever they want, but they're, they're just not put together like the rest of us they're you know it's the cal ripkins of bodybuilding they can just go and go and go and they're made of rubber and they Mm -hmm. don't have the injuries it's it's i mean did jay what were jay's um what were jay's injuries did he have any major i know he was smart in the sense that he didn't train to the the strength level that he had what was it bicep that was at the end okay i wonder if some of the curls i saw were before 
What's that? He, it worked. It looked so good that he asked the surgeon if he could purposely cut the other one for him. Because <laughs> it, well, it's actually funny because I had a buddy, and I told you guys this because we talked about it last episode about how Skip has had several clients who went bowling and partially tore their biceps, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. And one of my good buddies like messaged me the other day, and he was like, "Hey, when you tore your your, your bicep, which was several years ago, doing a bicep curl, and when I say tear, I'm not talking about tearing the tendon. I'm talking about tearing the muscle from the tendon. So the tendon's completely intact." And okay. I think that's kind of what the tears that um, that your clients probably had, Skip, similarly, I would imagine. And it's also yeah. the same, same kind of tear that my buddy Scott had. And I was giving him all the rundowns. And I'm like, you know, you go once it's healed, go do a front double and tell me that that bicep doesn't look better. Because yeah. It, yeah. it just creates that little divot in the uh, where the where the muscle attaches at the elbow. And it, it makes your peak look just a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it, though, as far right. as like being being sloppy, um, if someone could maintain, this is I've, I've said this time and time again. So we're weaker on the. Let's say you want to train heavy, we're yeah. weaker on the concentric. We're strong on the eccentric. Let's say you've got someone who can tr- control the eccentric. Being throwing some body English in there makes sense if we know about the force velocity curve of skeletal muscle that's weaker on the concentric than on the eccentric. So so maintain activation of the active muscle, the trained muscle, the targeted muscle, use the accessory muscles to help on the way up to be a little bit sloppy. This is, this is like a skill, right? This is, mm-hmm. this is an athletic skill, I think. And then control the eccentric because you're stronger. So you can control a heavier load than you could probably lift with the same kind of control, so to speak. Cause you're yeah. depending on the speed you're 20, 30% stronger on an eccentric than on a concentric. So not that I'm saying everyone should go out and just, train like an asshole and just start throwing shit all over the place but there's something to say and there was a line of life fitness at a line of machines that would add 20 percent to the eccentric yeah. i loved them it was a, a electron magnetically driven set of machines okay that's really that's a way that that would that would increase the activation on those eccentrics without mm. substantially increasing fatigue because you're simply stronger that's that's an ideal way if we could mm-hmm. if we could set up you know the ultimate space age um, and this is this is why that actually the study I mentioned from from that my my advisor Dudley was involved with that was for NASA they were looking at what's necessary to maintain muscle in space so this is like space age training would <laughs> would would stimulate the muscle the reps would be set up so that they're easier on the concentric and harder on the eccentric and the elect I've got one out in my barn right now it's electronically di- division uh, driven device magnetically driven device and you that's one of the modes eccentric you set the eccentric force and it gives you like 20 percent less on the concentric and that I mean theoretically that that would be i'd like to see people start doing studies with those things because yep but they got to find the right dose so that's some each of those reps each of those sets are more potent so if you compare 10 with 10 10 of the overloaded eccentrics might be more but i think that's what i think that's there's that's one one wa- reason why sloppy reps make sense to me, as long as they're not you know too risky in terms of an injury. Yeah. Um. And and the other thing you know that I think, not for everybody. There's plenty of examples of guys who train really hard with like just laser like focus, but when you just go in there and you're just ready to rip roar and rip that shit and you're just you're just there's nothing going to stop you. You're a fucking force of nature and that weight's going to move no matter fucking what. You get after it, and that mindset is one that sometimes it's okay to get a little bit sloppy with things here and there now and again. And 
on the other side of the coin, it's like, well, all my reps need to be perfect and you know, with the right pinky twist, as Dante might have said, and that kind of stuff. And that doesn't lend itself well to, to making progress, I think, to be over, being overly analytical, um, especially when I think – and, Scott, I'm going to do another podcast on progressive overload. We talked okay. about that. I think I bet on mine. Another one, someone invited me on that topic. But that's nice. the forgetting. That's the most scientific principle there is. Yeah. That's in every single study they do progressive overload, regardless of what they're testing, concentric versus eccentric, you know, stretch position, rep tempo, this exercise versus that. Progressive overload is the underlying principle that's always there. And how many people do you see boastfully talking, looking at showing their logbooks on Instagram? I haven't seen a logbook on Instagram. And I don't I think James Hollingshead was selling some for a while and it was probably a total flop, right? Because people <laughs> hey, don't like we to have log one. their shit. We have a logbook available yeah. from Think Big if you go to the uh, the merchandise page. Oh, oh, cool. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So you know. Anyway, there, that's 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 my thought on like being sloppy, but if it, but it, you got to have the mind muscle connection. I mean, I, I don't want to pick on him, but like if you look, if you got you guys know who Sam Sulik is now for sure. He was, yeah. you know, he's yeah. no. Yeah. Um, can you tell us who he is? Oh, yeah, no, well, I, 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 I'm totally kidding. We don't know. Yeah, you talked yeah, about yeah, him I, a bit. Like, oh, his, his in a respectful way, like we, we, like yeah. we're grown adult males, and we don't we don't thrive on this younger YouTube crowd. Maybe like we would have if we were in that age group. So we knew yeah. of him, and we were talking very respectfully, and we're like, "Hey, you know, we totally get what he's doing. Like, if it's working, mm-hmm. why change it?" And then a lot of the comments were like, "Oh, you guys pretending like you don't know who the biggest fitness superstar in the world is." And it's like, <laughs> well, no, we mentioned that we knew of him, but we don't watch yeah. every new drop video that comes out. You know, right? And, yeah. So, so, like, the way he does squats, I think is, is badass. Feet close together. He doesn't do them wide out necessarily like Platts does, but he goes all the way down. He's strong as shit. Full okay. range of motion. Very quad dominant. But there are a lot, lot of exercises he does where – and this is just this is just an intuitive thing from tra- having trained for, you know, a couple of weeks, something like that now, over the last four <laughs> decades. Um, he's just like, oh, he's missing so much shit. He's missing stuff there. The range of – he's missing some important things. He's got the right mindset. He's trying to move heavy shit around. And some exercise he's dead on. Whereas you look at like I trained with Dave Henry. Like Dave just – that was one thing about training with Dave. It's like he's just fucking – like it was just like this piston-like um, precision. beauty, aesthetic yeah. precision to each of his repetitions. Mm-hmm. And you could tell he's hitting the target muscle each time. And he was just naturally strong. So he – didn't have like an ego that, you know, so I got to use more weight because he's already using more weight than anyone else in the gym <laughs> yeah. in most every occasion. So, so some people you can see, and then you look at, look at Ronnie, like I mentioned before. And even though he was kind of sloppy, um, he looked like to me, I always had the sense he had a really good mind muscle connection. Um, I agree. Very you know, even on like, sometimes he did bicep curls and they, you know, they look really kind of crappy, but they look like they're not that he really need more biceps, but that was maybe his worst one. But I see some on Sam. So you, you can pick that out. That when I'm talking about here, it's throwing some body English. And there's a way to do that where you maintain the mind-muscle connection. And then there's a way to just kind of train sloppy that's just sloppy training. And you're missing the target muscle and you're, and you're leaving range of motion um, you know, in the tank where it could be had, which could probably help with the growth stimulus. Yeah. So. And I don't think there's any way to really explain that, do you? It's almost one of those things. The difference is just kind of, kind of a, an experience. Thing. You could and, you could get all fancy with EMGs and you could digitize it biomechanically and you could probably see it you could you could figure out what the differences are. 
um, for sure by filming somebody and the EMG. You could look at the activation patterns of the muscle. We may be able to synchronize. But I guess yeah. what I'm saying is the average person, no. and, and I think that's where you, this type of conversation, and I think it's a good conversation, isn't terribly beneficial for the newbie only because they're not going to understand what is good and what isn't from a from a mechanic standpoint of being loose. It just almost maybe I'm just I'm I'm not doing it very successfully, but maybe I just put myself in that newbie position, going, "Oh well, he's saying I can be loose, and if it feels good, it's yeah. just not that simple." It's almost like a coordinated or a coordination issue of knowing when that momentum is beneficial mm-hmm. and it's, not going to injure you. Because yeah. if you get sloppy at the wrong time, you use a bicep curl as an example. If you start to get sloppy at the wrong time, that will open you up to a different or to, potentially to injury versus when you get sloppy that it can help you when you have that mind-muscle connection to keep that set going and not be mm-hmm. in a vulnerable position. I guess the best way to explain it is this. You can drop dumbbells the wrong way or you can drop dumbbells the right way. But it's right. not necessarily wrong to drop dumbbells if you know how to drop them so they don't sure. fucking break and they go where you're, they're supposed to go. Yeah. yeah. You know, Scott said I, four decades of experience. That's where, you know, it, it yeah. just takes time. It takes time. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you guys this. How long do you think it takes on average to get that good mind-muscle connection to really start to appreciate the th- the topic we're talking about right here? So variable. Like, cause I know some people that train for six months and they just get it. Yeah. And then yeah. I know some people and, and actually I'll even go a step further. I think it's intra exercise variability. Like some people just have better coordination in planar movements. Yeah. Some people have better uh, um, yeah. coordination in other, pl- um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what's the other plane that's escaping my brain. You, you get, you guys get what I'm saying? Like Absolutely. some people might do really good in like a squat, hack squat, deadlifts mm-hmm. like like just that kind of coordinated movement whereas things coming from their arms and their chest like they're just not they don't have that coordination that neuromuscular coordination so that's the first step before they even get the rep speed the um the body english that we're talking about adding in i, I just think it's one of those things where you know it looks good when you see it because then you just go like oh that guy knows what he's doing right. and then you know mm-hmm. when it doesn't look good and you're like man if that guy would clean his reps up a little bit he'd be getting more out of his efforts that kind of there's thing. plenty mm-hmm. of people who train for a long time who have no concept they might even think they do and you can just look and go you just don't you do. or even where that mind muscle connection is there for the more obvious less complex muscles but i still stand on this and i'll stand on this probably till I go in the ground, the vast majority of people do not understand the proper proper mechanics of training back because it's such a complicated musculature that even Mm -hmm. people who have been around a long time and have good physiques do not understand and do not train their back correctly in, I'd say, I I mean, it's it's an arbitrary number to make my point, but 70% of the people in most gyms just Mm -hmm. aren't, if not more than that. I would agree. Don't know and they don't understand. And I understand everybody's doing their one arm lap pull and everything else. That's actually, in my opinion, a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Because as in annoying as that was to see every kid, I mean, I'm sounding like the guys who are against Sam now or the Sam wannabes, but it was. It was irritating to go in it because selfishly, because they're going to be on that machine for 20 minutes doing these ridiculous slow one arm movements. <laughs> exactly. And I'm waiting to use that piece. So it's selfish in that sense. But it did. 
it did get a lot of those people and especially that that younger generation or the newbie type trainer to really focus and think more comp complex or think about the complexities of the musculature of the back and try to hone in on those specific places mm-hmm. where before it's just like wow do a lat pull do a chin you know do a row as shitty as possible <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it looks I think good what, in the what gets missed there sometimes then and and this was um Ben Pokolsky was one of the first people to kind of usher that idea into the industry. And I talked to Ben on the phone one time and his plan was like that, that's stage one for people is to, mm. to learn mind muscle connection with these sort of isolation movements, et cetera, et cetera. And once they've got that down for a couple, couple years or so, then really start moving towards progressive overload with a good mind muscle connection. He said, but all that early stuff that just took off so well that he just never left. He never really went to phase two because he was just doing so well financially business-wise that he never really transitioned to that but the the thing i was going to say because ken you're saying like a lot of people won't kind of get what we're saying is like one thing i've done when i teach seminars when i work with people is is like you know say it's a bicep curl and i do this you can also do this when um just for your training for your if you're doing progressive overload is you do a set of perfect form right and we're like let's say it's the it's a bicep curl and your biceps okay because there's nothing left there and as long as you're safe with this right then say, now I'm going to try to throw a little bit of body English in and practice that. And you've now you've got fatigue, you've got the biofeedback coming from the muscle that you've just destroyed. And you're trying, you're staying just as focused as you were on those previous reps during these extra body English reps. And then they get a feel for what that can be. And you can do that. You could do that with like a, like a dumbbell row. Wouldn't be a bad one if they're well supported doing perfect form and then see what happens when they put a little bit of twist into it. Um, but only after they've really fatigued and their, the reps they would write down their logbook would be 12. And then, and then I, then they add three cheat reps, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got an exercise that I came up with a couple that I kept keep on reading. I posted a video on Instagram. It's a row stop dead for back. Yes. Um, and I, yeah, and you, yeah, Scott knows these. He's done these. And I, oh, they're I brutal, these. man. They're brutal. They're awesome. And, and all, all it is is instead of it, it's, not, it's a playoff dead stop row. But you bend over in a, in a you can do a barbell or a split machine. Um, you could even do it with dumbbells, I guess. But usually it works better with the bar. And you do a row up to the row. You stop. You hold the bar there. And then you stand upright as if you were doing a deadlift, but you got the bar held right, right at your belt line. And then you go back down. And then you reverse the movement. So you're holding that bar pushed up against right at your umbilicus or so. Um, and then you stand up with it. So you row, you stop, you deadlift it up, then you reverse it, and then row it back down. They're fucking brutal. They're awesome. It's, and it's once, probably, once you – what's that? It's, I was going to say it's probably a really safe way to do a deadlift too. Like if you're someone that can't do traditional deadlift kinda, anymore yeah. because the bar is as close to your core, to your center of gravity as it's ever going to be mm-hmm. when it's tucked in your umbilicus. So that, that's the first thing I thought of. And then, like, then when you go and do rows or anything else, it's like, wow, it does. These don't hit my lats for shit compared to this one. Um, <laughs> I got the video, they, Scott. You, I got the video. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, cool. Oh, yeah. we look now. Yeah. So I'm in the. I'm behind there. I'm behind. Look at. He's got no weight on there, right? Yeah. We were smoked. So this is rose. the end of the workout. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was when you guys first started. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was but, smoked, but still, man. You're not using my, much weight on these. My lower back I, 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 was screaming at me doing these. Yeah, I can see you won't need a lot of weight for these. And I would rather have. So you can't even hold the bar up there. So he was so fatigued. 
Oh wait, yeah. that's Scott. <laughs> <laughs> At first, yeah. I, I admit I'm like, oh shit, that's Scott. <laughs> it's the Did lack of weight? the beard. Oh yeah, Did you yeah. Wait for the female. I really, I yeah. can't. I don't recognize him without the beard now. That's funny, man. Because you knew me for yeah. years without it, but I, I know yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, listen, we got to wrap this thing up. Soon, yeah. We got to wrap this thing up, though, Scott. We appreciate you coming in to hang out with us, man. We should have you back more often. That's cool. We'd love to. All right, guys, go to uh, byobbcoach.com. You can get Scott's book there. Um, Also, Amazon, get the hardcover. And, of course, go to bodyberry.com to reach out to Andrew for coaching, teamskip.com. Reach out to Skip McNally, diets at gmail.com. You can hit me up for coaching. And, of course, uh, truenutrition.com. Use our code, think, supplementsource.ca. And thank you to all of our Patreons. You guys are freaking awesome. And to everybody in the live stream, we're going to record another episode. So, all right. We appreciate you guys. Thank you, Scott. (laughs) Adios.